show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Does it surprise you that more than 110,000 households in Sydney are in housing stress? What if I told you that these households were in Western Sydney? While the common myth of the ease of buying out West continues to spread, the reality continues to be that Sydney's Western suburbs are facing a similar housing crisis to the rest of Sydney. Not only that, but 32.8% of renting households in Western Sydney are in rental stress as well, with rental costs increasing at a higher rate than income compared to the rest of Sydney. We have Charlton One from Western Sydney Community Forum to chat to us about all of this. Hey, Charlton. Hey, how are you guys going? So um, we're doing really great. Thanks for being here. Um, so, Charlton, what is housing stress and what is rental stress? Explain it all for us, please. Yeah, I mean, so the most basic way to understand, and it's pretty much a general rule of thumb. So when you're talking about housing stress, you're looking at both um, mortgage stress as well as rental stress com- combined together. So essentially, people are spending more than 30% of their household income. So when we're talking about households, you know, just a single home, and the people who live in there, how much uh, no, them spending more than thirty percent of their income on, you know, paying off mortgages, paying off rent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a common perception that it is cheaper to buy and rent in Western Sydney, but is that true? I mean, it was true historically speaking. So you know, looking back maybe twenty or thirty years ago, you know, the Australian dream having you know a, a uh, a place to call your own, you know, a, a single detached home with a fence, you know, a, a front yard and a backyard. That was that was te- uh, typically the affordable dream, and Western Sydney was the place to do it. But I mean, over time, things haven't really, you know, progressed the same way as it did 30 years ago. Um, so it, it's kind of made things slightly harder. And realistically speaking, in today's media. When people say um, across the board, Sydney is um, kind of things are getting uh, rent and and uh, purchasing homes are being uh, are being more affordable technically, but however you have to look at the bigger picture. That's the average prices of the entirety of Sydney. Whereas um, you know, and when you take it into those, those averages of like places like North Sydney and you know more eastern seaboard side, it's it, those, sure those prices are are dropping slightly, but the whole of Western Sydney is kind of staying the same price, and you know, th- our our uh, in- household incomes aren't increasing to meet that kind of level of of affordability. So, what exactly is the extent of the problem in the West? Uh, all of the West isn't just one massive suburb, right? So, which suburbs are more affected than others? Um, so, I mean, when you're looking at really the core of where most of the housing affordability issues kind of rise is really that central part of Western Sydney. So, w- what I'm talking about here is more like the Liverpool, Parramatta, Cumberland, uh, Fairfield, that kind of Blacktown block. Um, so, whereas when the further you go out west, it's um, it's 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 not as bad as as central uh, central Western Sydney, but it's still you know. Things as as things continue to sprawl, it will increase in kind of issues. Um, I mean, so I mentioned earlier around household income growth growth compared to you know the rising cost of of rental payments. I mean, what you're looking at here is Sydney overall. I mean, you know, in the past uh, from 2011 to 2016, um, you're looking at you know. Um, in household incomes are growing by 20%, essentially, whereas rent grew by 23%. But if you look at 
places like, say, Campbelltown and Fairfield, um, you know, household income grew by about 16% um, in from 2011 to 2016, whereas rent grew by 35%. And similarly with Fairfield, uh, you have a 19% increase in kind of in income, but whereas your rent is increased by 27%. So there's this huge difference between how much people are earning and how much people are paying in rent. So, I mean, there's this, this, this huge difference causes, you know, in, an obvious increase in housing stress. And as a result, you've got in, uh, a, a pretty significant increase in people who are becoming homeless and, you know, not being able to afford rent and, you know, the stress that come along with that. So, Charlton, can you give us an overview of, um, you know, how is this affecting homeowners and um, people who are renting in Western Sydney with the rental crisis? Mm. So, I mean, individually speaking, I mean, obviously, an increase in rent means your, your ability to afford things is, you know, severely impacted. So, I mean, on a very basic level, you know, it could be as simple as something as foregoing breakfast. Mm. So, like, more and more, we're finding more and more, like, and this is across Sydney in general. So, you know, more and more, say, children are heading into school without, you know, adequate breakfast in the morning. And so, and then extending a little wider, you have people starting to move into, like, illegally, um, illegal housing, essentially. So, you know, um, illegal granny flats or uh, subdivising garages so you, so you, more people can live in, you know, a single unit or, I mean, a single house, sorry. Um, and so because of that, I mean, it's... it's it, you have these massive, serious overcrowding issues. I mean, traditionally it was it was really predominant in the city centre, in Sydney CBD. But, you know, you, you're starting to see places like Fairfield um, starting to, to grow in these kind of illegal subdivised lots. Um, then again, like, back to the whole individual side, I mean, because of people needing, you know, um, essentially uh, better access to... to um, renovations and whatnot, you have more and more people kind of seeking support services. So take, for example, the no, no interest loan scheme. You have more and more people accessing those services to, you know, purchase really basic things like, say, if your, your fridge breaks down, you need to replace that. And then finally, um, you've got, you know, the market-driven response-wise, I mean, more strategically speaking, you have an increase of sprawling outwards. So you've got places like Riverston and Schofields and Austral where they're kind of popping up, um, you know, as as a kind of driving force from the market trying to drive things further. But, I mean, all in all, I mean, these things sound, you know, really kind of negative. For, but what this has brought up is some great positive kind of innovations. So you've got community services like, um, say, Wentworth Community Housing, uh, working on things like their Garden Flats Expo, or you have more youth housing options from uh, Hume Community Housing, as well as um, working with multiple, uh, the community services working with multiple different organisations outside of the traditional community sector kind of view. So you take, for example, you have uh, community services in MacArthur working together with real estate agents to work with tenants, kind of um, trying to work out, you know, how to keep them in their homes as opposed to you know that potential economic loss on the on the real estate end of them leaving so even though houses are just as expensive out west it seems like a lot um it seems like um it's not as ex- not as prestigious to buy a house out west as it is to buy one in the city so what effect does that have on housing and rental stress and does it have one i mean Traditionally speaking, I mean, previously, 
living out west wasn't as sexy as living in you know uh, yeah. an apartment in, <laughs> in like you know, Darlinghurst in, or yeah. yeah exactly but like but with say like the the develop the huge developments in Parramatta and all these government services and jobs moving out to Parramatta I mean you're starting to get a real increase in people thinking you know Parramatta is probably the place to be mm. to kind of live for career wise and then as a result you've got more and more people living around. Um, same same goes by you know the 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 development of the new airport. I mean you know that'll bring in new jobs, new new you know places to live and grand places to live. I mean, but similarly speaking, you know you you've got this really interesting cultural um, shift. So where you know you've got more and more young, you know more savvy. Yeah. Uh, loathe to use the word hipster, but moving out <laughs> You're towards an FBI radio. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, moving out towards um, Penrith and like Jameson Town, um, Amy yeah. Plains region. You know, you've got these really cool places sprouting up with like you know really trendy cafes and you know uh, really great food. Moving out west, mm. so it. it, it I feel like, yeah, maybe the gentrification of Western Sydney might be happening. Mm. Yeah. Um, look, you know, it's been great speaking to you, Charlton. Um, just to wrap up, I guess, you know, what's something you want to tell our listeners when it comes to the federal election and this housing stress Absolutely. in Western Sydney? Realistically, when, you t- when you're dealing with, the housing, uh, with housing affordability and issues around that, it's kind of hard to do in a kind of an individual format. But what we really need to do... and what was really inspiring was seeing young people come band together to really um, advocate for climate change policies, and we need to really need need to, need to do something similarly in the field in um, afford in affordability, and that goes for the entirety of Australia because we have like housing affordabilities across the, the entire nation. But realistically speaking, I mean, on a policy platform, what we really really need to do is start pushing for better targets for affordable housing in 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 areas across Sydney. So looking at say fifteen percent. Um, uh, affordable housing zones for um, private rentals, and then whereas also you know thirty percent for government-owned land. Thank you so much for talking with us this morning, Charlton. That was Charlton One from the Western Sydney Community Forum talking to us about housing stress amongst homeowners and renters in Sydney's West. Stay tuned because next up we have a story from one of our very own reporters. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. <laughs> Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Now, have you heard of mumble rap? It's the latest emerging subgenre of rap music and its popularity is only increasing. Also dubbed emo rap or SoundCloud rap, it's an offshoot of mainstream hip-hop best recognised by its quietly mournful and noisily distorted music, which is rapped over by the artist who usually mumbles or slurs their words. Our very own reporter, Eamon Snow, has the story. I think for a bottle, it was around, it's around $250, which is 50 tablets. From the doctors, it's around like 100 to 150, so it's more expensive at street value. Codeine, oxycodeine, tablets and pills are sold individually for maybe ten to twenty dollars, and then from a from a pharmacy, a, a packet of ten is like twenty dollars. In 2017, U.S. President Donald Trump declared a national public health emergency in response to the country's opioid epidemic. 
By the end of that year, 50,000 Americans had died from opioid overdoses. Whilst opioid use hasn't reached such epidemic proportions in Australia just yet, the figures highlight a growing problem. This year, 2,000 people will die from an opioid overdose in New South Wales alone. Pop culture's role in encouraging this drug use and abuse has increasingly been called into question. Many have taken aim at rap and hip-hop music, accusing some artists of glorifying the use of dangerous and addictive opioids. This culture and its impacts are well documented in the US, but its reach into Australia has gone largely unnoticed. The first time that I had noticed artists and rappers talking about these drugs was like in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's still an elder Shaw a long-time hip-hop fan from Sydney's northern beaches. He says he's noticed changes in the scene over time. From you know, like mid-2000s to now, it's the whole scene is just based around solely, you know, like women, use of drugs and other designer drugs. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's almost like it's not much of a song without like the, the glamorization of these things, like less of a story, which is kind of sad. The branch of hip-hop attracting so much criticism for its promotion of opioids is known by many as mumble rap. Mumble rap, also known as emo rap or soundcloud rap, shot to popularity in 2010 when backyard artists began developing huge followings on music streaming platform SoundCloud. Its music is generally characterised by slow beats, melodic flows and a kind of lazy delivery, hence the term mumble rap. Artists usually rap about drugs, money, partying, women and designer clothes, with it all often packaged beneath darker themes revolving around personal struggle. Unlike earlier forms of hip-hop saturated with references to marijuana, the drugs of choice in the mumble rap scene are opioid prescription pharmaceuticals. Xanax, which is uh, a prazolam, uh, oxycodone, oxycontin, Percocet, and even a purple drink, which is codeine and promethazine. People are, you know, taking it and listening or going to shows and so on and so forth. A lot of these things that they're taking are like antidepressants and painkillers, and which aren't really known for recreational drug use, but through like the style of hip-hop and it being more of a laid-back, chilled style as opposed to sort of aggressive or party music. From the start, the mumble rap scene has remained largely independent of major labels, something which has further fueled its popularity. But despite its growing presence, the genre has faced criticism from across the music world. Steve O'Demian has been involved with Australian music for 15 years, organising and programming large-scale festivals and events like Saifari, Subsonic, Defcon 1 and the Pete's Ridge Festival. He sees mumble rap's rise as symptomatic of a larger issue with popular music. I mean, pop waves have come and gone over, over time. Generally, they've been, you know... Driven, driven by record labels and, and things like that, whereas now there's definitely a, a shift to social media being a very big driving force behind what's popular. And we, we've moved towards this trend of watching music instead of listening to music. Attractive artists, captivating video clips, people look a bit freaky. This sort of stuff's been used to sell music for decades, but I'd argue that in the past, the majority of that music would be able to stand on its own legs for its musical value. Whereas today, it's, it's hard to imagine this music succeeding on its own without that whole scene and culture and marketing that comes with it. With such a strong culture surrounding it, mumble rap's influence isn't hard to imagine. And it's this influence that has many worried. In 2017, one of the scene's biggest stars, Lil Peep, was found dead on his tour bus. A toxicology report released in the weeks following confirmed the cause of death was an accidental overdose from pain medication fentanyl and alprazolam.
In the hours before his death, Peep had posted videos to social media taking unidentified pills and claiming to have taken six Xanax tablets. Even in the wake of Lil Peep's death, it seems not much has changed. Dangerous, addictive drugs continue to be celebrated. Opioids mainly, they can cause a kind of a dissociative state where you feel detached from the world, they relieve pain. These are the main effects, but they're also very addictive. Dr. Lisa Wynn is head of the anthropology department and associate professor at Macquarie University. She runs the uni's most popular unit, Drugs Across Cultures. With all drugs, there's a difference between the effective dose and the lethal dose, right? So the effective dose is how much it takes the average person to feel the effect of that drug. And then the lethal dose is how much they have to take to kill themselves. The danger with most opioids is that there is a very small difference between the effective dose and the lethal dose, right? So you have to be very precise in your dosing and it's pretty easy to go too far and hit the overdose. Drugs have always formed a part of hip hop music and its culture. Although Dr. Wynn points out that some drug cultures are worse than others. What's really interesting about the rap and hip hop celebration of cannabis, marijuana, is that it's actually a public health boon because cannabis is less dangerous than a lot of other drugs. So raps and hip hop celebration of cannabis is actually so good for public health because it's leading people to embrace a drug that's not nearly as harmful as some of the popular drugs from the 80s, like cocaine, or the 70s, like heroin. So we know that, you know, the celebration of drugs in popular culture, therefore, can be a positive thing. But in this case, it doesn't look like it's that positive. Many agree that mumble rap is problematic for the drug culture it promotes. But just how much responsibility should we put on artists themselves? And these people are getting hundreds and thousands of plays, whether it's the radio or like SoundCloud or Spotify and stuff. Like, they have to have some responsibility for it. They probably think they're just telling a story. But I think a lot of people are getting into this sort of thing just because of, you know, it's the music scene, it's the trend they follow. Listening to metal, people tie their hair black, stuff like this. It's like a, a culture and an aesthetic as well. Do we think that artists should have responsibility to promote certain things. I think their music wouldn't seem authentic to listeners if they just felt like they were responsible for sending out public health messages, you know? They're speaking to the reality of their world. I think what we need to work on is harm minimization. How do we how do we educate people about what they can expect if they use a drug? Not educating them by saying, don't use drugs ever. Right? because that's not going to work. But we can say drugs can be harmful and you can minimize harms by doing X, Y, or Z. That was Eamon Snow on the rise of mumble rap. The, the Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Chat, your alternative to talk back. What if we had a train that could take you from Sydney to the heart of Melbourne in under three hours? Australia has been talking about building a bullet train for years, but why is it that we haven't caught up to the degree of transport innovation in countries like Japan or Hong Kong? Australia should bite the bullet and build a high-speed rail line between Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, said senior Labour figure Anthony Albanese 
earlier this year in a sign the opposition is preparing to put the perennial election issue back on the agenda. We've got Joey Watson, a features writer at Radio National and presenter of Out of the Box here at our very own FBI Radio to talk about the bullet train urban myth and why we just can't seem to make it a reality. Hi there, Joey. Welcome back to the studio. Swear Shami. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. So, you wrote an article for Radio National about the possibility of an Australian bullet train. What do you think the influence of a high-speed rail network would be on our country? Uh, well, I guess you could answer that question from a, a few different perspectives. Um, at the uh, very practical level, uh, the very real level, it means that we would be able to travel between cities at a uh, remarkably fast pace via rail. Uh, but at the high level, I mean, there's probably questions of uh, you know cultural nationalism. What does it mean to be a nation that is a high-speed rail nation? Um, where does that put us amongst the family of nations? There's a certain kind of prestige about it. And I think that that's a lot of the reason why people tend to get so excited excited about this issue and a lot of the reason why it uh, keeps getting resurfaced at, in, in time for each uh, election because there's something very exciting about 300 kilometers of um, you know beautiful titanium channeling through the countryside between cities so yeah so at the top of the show we asked our listeners uh, whether they'd support a uh, bullet train being built and we put it up on Twitter and the Twitter poll says that 25% of our listeners say no whereas 75% say yes. Now clearly the support uh, but at least for our listenership but uh, is it actually efficient? Is there any great benefit to it honestly? The answer would probably be no, other than the excitement of the prospect um, and, and the beauty of the of the idea of what it would represent. Uh, in truth, the latest figure would put it at, um, this is based on an assessment that it was done by the previous Rudd-Gillard government. This is the last feasibility study of many, many feasibility studies that have happened over the years, $120 billion. Now, to put that in perspective, WestConnex, you know, which we all love so much, no doubt, here on the FBI radio, <laughs> yep. it's not, not to editorialise in any way, is, uh, is, a, is, is estimated to blow up to be a $45 billion project, and that would probably be the most expensive transport, single transport project in, in the history of this nation. So we're talking not, you know, more, like significantly more than than double that. So, you know, that adds up to about $5,000 per taxpayer. And the question is, you know, if if we're not going to make a return on it, we're, um, is it actually something that's worthwhile? We have uh, aviation routes that connect uh, our cities already. It uh, stands on its own two, own two feet commercially. So do we want to replace it with something that would be um, heavily reliant on very, very large amounts of government money? And while the cultural nationalist argument might make sense, it is exciting, I guess, you know. But from a consumer perspective, would it be, uh, would it be economically, I don't know, better for the consumer? I mean, for the individual consumer, uh, yeah, probably. I mean, it would once again depend on how much the government would be willing to subsidise. Okay. So it depends on the actual format of, of, of how the product would exist when it is implemented. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 idea of being able to go between cities very quickly as a consumer, if that's something that you're into, it would be pretty cool. So would regional economies be bolstered by a high-speed train network? Mm, it's a good question because this is usually the argument, at least before recent elections that have been put forward uh, to in, in favour of the high-speed rail, saying that cities are over-congested, we need to um, uh, create an urban sprawl that's more, more uh, effective, that's larger over larger distances. But 
uh, it's it's questionable. It's questionable as to whether or not that that might work. The reason for that is that what we've seen overseas is that the um, town that gets the station, so there'll be one particular region of Central that will get a station, will be somewhat regenerated as a consequence, but it will usually be um, to the demise of the towns around it. Right. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 with Swethan Shami. We're speaking to Joey Watson about the bullet train urban myth and why we just can't seem to make it a reality. So we've got some texts in and one of them says, bullet train. Yeah, look, <laughs> bullet. Like, bullet train. I just say the, the poll said 75% support it, but none mm. of our texters support it. I, yeah. Someone said bullet train. Someone else just texted and they said, welcome to 2020 people. It's 2019, all right. Uh, train is dead technology. It's a horse and car oh world. The level of maintenance over such a large distance is financially unviable. I agree, personally. Look, so, I disagree yeah. with all our listeners. No, no, and I, I want to ask you, Joey, look, I've been thinking about the bullet train for a long time, yep. and I have some theories as to why it's not been put <laughs> oh, to God. Okay. put to rest. Say sweet, I'm very excited to hear. Okay, well, look, did you know, Joey, that the Sydney to Melbourne flight route is in the top five business flight paths in the entire world? In the entire world. In the entire world. So, true or false? Do you reckon the Qantas lobbyist is pretty damn good? Look. That 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 would be very much in the realm of con- conjecture for here on uh, on, on pu- public radio. Um, that is a theory that that I, I've read. Yeah. I, I think that the um, the flight lobby are pretty good at protecting their own interests. For sure. But Top five it, in the entire world, like compared to New York to LA, you know, all those flight parts, Melbourne to Sydney. Wow, lots of people mm-hmm. flying between them. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there's a, there's there's certainly a possibility, um, but I think. Uh, you know, ultimately, the the uh, you know, government-funded reports still suggest that uh, even with the amount of traffic moving between those those two cities at that distance, it would uh, it would be very very expensive. All right. Okay. You sound cynical. So, shall we go to conspiracy number two? Conspiracy number two. Let me hear it. Okay. Um, they've already built it. But it's only for those angry men in suits in Martin Place who always wheel around luggage. You know those guys? They always have luggage in their hands. Uh huh. Uh huh. They've already. What are they carrying in that? In, in the that that is. I, I think, I think you've got it. What are they carrying in those suitcases? <laughs> oh no! They, they would suggest the they would have to be traveling over large distances. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. You know. That, yeah, that's true. I'm, that's I'm not buying any of this. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Last conspiracy theory. Did you know, Joey, that there was actually a bullet train political party that began in 2013? Is that a conspiracy theory? No, no, I'm just... Uh, okay, that's exciting. So there was a bullet train political party that yeah. started in 2013, run by Tim Boehm. Okay. Um, and it dissolved in 2017. And I reckon my conspiracy theory is that it dissolved to start Keep Sydney Open political party. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Oh, my goodness. Fact. Fact. Uh, it's got to be. I don't want Keep Sydney Open to come after us. FBI Radio's very own Tyson Coe as well. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, um, okay. I'm going to keep fighting the good fight. Okay. And back to the actual interview. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I guess really quickly, just to help me understand, how long would it take to get from Sydney to Melbourne on a bullet train? Like, how long would it take? Well, the the fastest, like the fastest, the fastest trains in the world, traveling at about three hundred kilometers an hour, would be you know like a one to two hour journey. 
Okay. But we are unlikely to Okay, because it's about 900 kilometers to get to, from, from Sydney Central to uh, Melbourne Central, about 900-ish, so it'd be about three hours. So that, I don't know how time-effective that is compared to a one-hour flight. Yeah, well, that, that that's the other question. And, and the thing is that that model, if we're talking about regenerating regional economies, that basically means that we're mm. putting in regional stops, which means if we're putting in regional stops, that means that that 300 to 400 kilometer an hour thing is not going to happen mm. because uh, the more, uh, you know, obviously the, the more the train has to stop, then the more it, um, the, the slower it will be. Um, it takes a while to get up to those speeds. So um, it's a kind of paradox when politicians are talking about um, regenerating regional economies uh, and the high-speed rail. Maybe they're actually just talking about a faster-speed rail. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, it, I, I look forward to hearing about this topic come up every single election cycle. For the rest of our <laughs> lives. For the rest of my life, until I die. <laughs> Hopefully buried in a bullet train. Um, thanks, Joey, for speaking to us. Joey Watson is a features writer at Radio National and presenter of Out of the Box here at FBI Radio, talking to us about the Australian transport system. Well, that's all we have time for the show today. Big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekolovska and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Charlton One and Joey Watson. We'll catch you next week, but before we do, here is Tonight by Cosmic Spice.